sometimes you need to hit the pause button as a clinician um, and a researcher and say, hang on, this is what my underlying assumption is. We want to be evidence-based practitioners, but in fact, this is just how we should practice. Ethics is every part of every clinical decision that we make. And what it is that we do is we make lives better. Welcome to Speak Up, the Speech Pathology Australia podcast. This podcast series highlights conversations with esteemed contributors in the speech pathology space. We explore key issues in the profession in a short and easy to listen to format. Let's hear what this week's contributors have to say. It's Lucy Shanahan here and and I'm one of the members of the Victorian Professional Learning Committee and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Leanne Tor, who's the Professor of Communication Disorders following TBI or Traumatic Traumatic Brain Injury from the University of Sydney. Welcome Leanne and thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. Um, Leanne, I've got a couple of questions prepared that I thought we could work through, but um, as you know, I'm I'm always up for a chat around traumatic brain injury and what we know these days in terms of assessment, intervention and support for people with communication and cognitive impairment following TBI. So I'll Mm -hmm. kick us off with a question, but then feel free to, to lead the conversation where it might need to go. Okay. So we know, we do know so much more these days about the need for functional everyday assessment of communication skills following TBI rather than the more traditional standardised clinical assessments that I think a lot of us have been trained to use. What are the key things that you wish every speech pathologist knew when it comes to assessing communication impairment post-TBI? Well, I think the very first thing is don't rely on standardised tests. I think if there was one take-home message from from this um, chat we're having is there are there are so many other better ways to work out how a person with brain injury is functioning at the moment and how we can help them. And um, the the sad truth is we know that people do rely on standardised tests, and uh, I've done that myself when 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 I've seen people with with brain injury. Um, it's a it's kind of a safe option. You know, you've got your your test battery there, and you can just work through it, and you don't have to sort of um, think too much about it but um, I think in addition to doing standardised tests I'm not, not saying don't do them I think we do need some standardised tests when we're assessing people but there are many other ways to look at how we can assess somebody with a brain injury and um, in thinking about how to do that I think there are three main areas to think about mm-hmm. um, one is to always uh, include some kind of um, task where you're asking the person to produce connected discourse um, and to, to have some focus on discourse assessment. And that's something we all know. It's, um, it's harder to do. But if you, don't even, if you don't even record someone doing some discourse, then, you know, you'll, you'll never know the answer to, to a question like how well are they um, putting their ideas together? Are they logical? Are they connected? Um, are they... How are they going with, with, with interacting with other people, looking at their pragmatic skills and that kind of thing? So I think looking at um, having some kind of discourse task in your assessment protocol is really important. And um, I think my, my uh, life's legacy so far has been to really think about how can I include family and friends in the assessment? And 
that also doesn't come naturally to us as speech pathologists. Uh, I don't remember being particularly trained to do that when I was a student many years ago. And um, so my challenge from, from that point of view was always, well, what do I do with them? You know, like, do you get them in and they sit in the back corner of your office and, and then you, you know, sum up at the end. Um, that's, that's sort of what I used to do a lot um, when I, in the early days of being a clinician, whereas now I would have them at the table and I would actually be getting them to talk to the person with brain injury uh, and looking at what's going on, or even better, me leaving the room and recording them talking to each other and seeing what's happening. And, you know, there are, there are some good tasks that we've developed now that you can do that. And uh, so um, that's something that I, that I do talk about and that, and that we've, we've continued to develop is how do you, how do you include family and friends in, in the assessment? Um, and I think the last, the last area um, that once again, it's sort of, it sounds so common sense, but it's learn about the person's life. You know, learn about who, who is it you, you're actually dealing with, who are their family, what, what are their interests, what, what were they doing before they had their injury, what do they want to do now? Um, that's just absolutely critical and central to what to what we do when we assess someone, particularly when we're looking at cognitive communication. And we have some really nice, quick assessment tools to help us answer questions like, what did they do for work? What are they, how are they getting on at home? Are they able to get themselves onto the bus? And you might think, oh, that's a bit occupational therapy kind of focused, but it's really important that we know those things so that if getting the bus is a really important skill, what communication do they need to be able to do that? So um, I think being able to situate what you're doing within um, the picture of that person's life and really getting to know them and what's important to them uh, sets you up for doing a much better assessment than just running them through some standardised tests. Fantastic. Thank you. I think they're really great tips and... Uh... I'd certainly say from a, from a very practical perspective, they give you as a clinician so much information about the person and their communication environments and their needs to help drive intervention. Yeah, yeah, it's just really important. And I think we can, we can just get in this trap of um, knowing what we want to find out um, from a language point of view or, um, you know, whether they've got dysarthria and you know, they're all important things, what their word-finding skills are, but you can do all that in the absence of that knowledge and, and end up with an assessment that doesn't mean very much. Absolutely. And thinking about intervention, I, one of the things that interests me at the moment is the evidence base that we've got around group-based intervention for people with cognitive communication impairment is growing significantly at the moment. And there's some really great um, projects that have been completed that really shows the evidence in, in working in a group with, with people uh, with communication, cognitive communication impairments post-TBI. Mm. Um, why do you think group-based treatment approaches really benefit people with cognitive communication disorders? Well, you know, we've been uh, grappling with this question recently because we, uh, a PhD student of mine who's just finished, Rachel Redake, just completed a, a follow-up study of a communication partner training program um, that I developed um, with her and, and others years ago, we, the first version was called TBI Express. And TBI Express definitely included group treatment and individual treatment. People would all get both. Um, 
but we wanted to adapt that to a version. We had some feedback from some clinicians saying it's really hard to get a group together. So it'd be really great to have a version that we could just do with the person with brain injury and their family on their own, no group. So we developed this thing called TBI Connect, which is a version of TBI Express that it's a bit shorter and it does that individual face-to-face -face thing. Uh, and it certainly has had positive effects and Rachel has published all, all her work now. So, so that's all out there. But we did notice that the maintenance wasn't quite as good as what it was when we did TBI Express, the maintenance of the effects. And we're wondering whether there's something inherent, inherent about being in the group um, that just boosts you that little bit more and maybe helps you maintain your, your results a little bit longer. And so in thinking about well, what is it about a group, um, I think first and foremost, you know, we're, we're working on social communication and a group is social, right? So it's the whole thing about arriving, you're greeting, you're all sitting down, you're having a laugh. Um, there's a lot of solidarity developed. Um, if you run a good group, that group becomes a support for each other. And what we found in, in some of the groups that we ran with TBI Express, those people developed friendships and networks that, that persisted after we'd finished the training, um, particularly for the family members. So with TBI Express, we had both the family and the person with brain injury in all the sessions. And the family members uh, really benefited from that, that concept that it's not just this isn't just happening for me, you know, I'm not dealing with this issue. I'm not the only one in the world dealing with this issue. Um, other people are having these issues and that immediately makes it a bit better to deal with because A, you're acknowledging that and B, you can work, you can problem solve with others to figure out, well, how do you deal with it when they're really angry and, and cranky and, or how do you deal with it when they won't stop talking? What do you do? Um, and so, the, the group was definitely um, greater than the sum of the parts. And so that problem solving element, the solidarity, um, the fact that natural feedback happens in a group, you know, it's not the clinician saying, oh, no, let's try that again. Um, the, they would get natural feedback from other people in the brain injury um, group to say, actually, I don't, I don't get what you're saying. Or, or they'd cut them off because they'd talk too long. Or, so it was just natural feedback. Um, I think being in a group also helps a person re-establish their social identity of who they are. And when they're in a therapy session with us, doesn't matter how positive and lovely we are as clinicians and open and sharing, we're still the clinician and they're still the patient. And you it's very hard to shift that social that social role whereas when you're in a group and you're with other people um you're with it you're with others that are like you and you're more likely to be able to develop a sense of who you really are who do i want to be in this group who do i want and we work on that in tbi express too like if if, if who you are now isn't what you really want to be how how are we going to get you to that person that you want to be uh, and it might be a new person. It might be a different person to who you were before the injury. So, so there's that sense of developing um, your identity, I think, in a group that's much easier to address in that situation. And I guess the, la the last thing I'd think about in terms of groups 
is that they are naturally pretty fun. I mean, people do laugh and joke and send each other up and, um, you know, you've obviously got guidelines about what you, you're happy for people to do in a group, but they, there's just this natural banter that happens and, um, and joking. And that doesn't tend to happen as much when we're doing individual sessions with people because of that role boundary that we've got. So I think they're just fun. So people, if you're having fun and you're relaxed, I honestly think you're open to learning more and remembering more about what you're doing. Um, and you're more likely to have a go at doing it out in the world too, because it was fun doing it the first time when you did it in that group. So there's lots of benefits to, to groups. So it's, it's uh, you know, not always possible, but I think if, um, if you're able to manage putting a group together, I think it's a great advantage to everybody. Fantastic. I, I couldn't, I just think from my own experience, I couldn't agree more that some of the best outcomes that you see with people is, for, is based from the group interventions that they've been able to participate in. I genuinely think it helps build people's confidence, their sense of identity. Um, and if possible, when you can run groups outside of the traditional clinic setting, um, I've been known to run groups in a pub over a game of pool, if that's what's needed. <laughs> That just cements for people, I think, also that emotional memory of their ability to participate well in conversation and to communicate their needs in an everyday setting, and I think that's invaluable. I'd agree with you. I I was involved um, and still am involved with a um, researcher in the United States called Louise Keegan, and she did um, groups in the community um, in North Carolina and the group members chose where they would want their next group session. So she did groups in bowling alleys and coffee shops and all, all sorts of places, but still managed to record what was going on. So, so you know, we worked out some measures that she could take um, and she had some students with her when she was running those groups. And the groups ran for years and people would come and go and they wouldn't always come to every group, but it really... Um, gave people the opportunity to, to practice their communication. Because the other issue is a lot of these people are really socially isolated. So it might've been the only time in the week that they actually got to talk to somebody. Um, and to figure out, you know, some of the guys wanted to learn about how to date and how to approach a girl. And so that was something that they did in the group. So it wasn't only the place of where they'd have the group um, that the participants would um, decide, but also what kind of things, what kind of goals. So, you know, using goal attainment scaling and having each person focusing on what, what's important for them. Um, yeah, for one of the guys, it was not touching the girls, you know, 90% of the time. Um, so, which was achieved, you know, we, we managed to get that one right back so that she, he wasn't touching people unless he asked them first. Um, so, so it's a real, it's a great opportunity to work on socially motivated, intrinsically meaningful goals for that person. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And you've touched on their, um, I guess sometimes the creativity needed or the trick sometimes in, in actually gathering the, our outcome measures and, and how we can collect data um, in those really dynamic and, and fluid environments. Have mm. you got any tips or suggestions for outcome data that people might be able to well, I think I think that, that that group experience really told us that the goal attainment scaling was the primary best way because we could sit down with the people individually and figure out what was meaningful for them and what would have the most impact on 
how well they interacted in their conversations. And that wasn't a hard thing to, you know, at the end of, at the end of a group, wherever they were, um, Louise and the students could sit down with the person and say, well, where, how did you think? And it's, it's only a five point scale. And it's like, have you met the target? Do you think you did a bit better or do you think you did a bit worse? And having a, a clear description of what that target might be um, really helped people focus on it. They knew that they had those goals and, you know, they might only have one goal that they can focus on. They might have three goals they can focus on depending on how, um, you know, with it they are and being able to manage thinking about goals. But that was the key way to, to really focus on outcomes. And we found, and you can do... If you so desire, you can do statistical analysis to, to say, well, actually, they are better, that that was, they are reliably better now than they were when we started this six weeks ago on that goal. And those kind of goals had much greater impact on, that, on the, those people than whether they uh, improved on, you know, the favours test or whether they improved on the, um, you know, a, even a Latrobe communication questionnaire. Um, which I do use routinely in everything I do. But the goals were that so much more per personally meaningful. So I think as an outcome measure, that if you only went out to try one, that'd, that'd be what I'd do. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, the goal attainment scale fits really nicely with the ongoing philosophy of cementing the work that we're doing in meaningful tasks, activities and outcomes for the, the person with the TBI. Leanne, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to us today. You've, it's, you've got a wealth of knowledge and I think you've shared some really practical tips that I think lots of clinicians will be able to take away and put into their everyday practice. So thanks for your time. Oh, thank you so much, Lucy. It's been lovely talking to you. And, um, yeah, I mean, I could talk about my work all day. So that this has been a lot of fun. So thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your colleagues. Thank you for listening and bye for now.